Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Welcome to part three of our special feature on Jane Austen's books. Today we are going to wrap up the series with books number five and six. Book number five, Persuasion, written in 1816 at Chawton and published in 1817 posthumously. Jane Austen did not give it a title. She had been referring to it as the Elliots, but Henry, brother Henry, Cassandra, and the publisher together came up with the name Persuasion. And on to the 30-second summary. Almost a decade after breaking an engagement with penniless Frederick Wentworth, Anne Elliot is older and still in love with the now successful officer. Is she brave enough to share her feelings? And what if he shares his back? The end. Sir Walter Elliot, proprietor of Kellynch Hall, has run into some financial difficulties. Superficial, supremely handsome, very rank conscious, he gets along very well with the eldest of his daughters, Elizabeth, who is cut from the same cloth. Younger daughter Mary, who is a very nervous woman, is undramatically married and living nearby. Yeah, she's married to a respectable but kind of unremarkable man, but she's nearby, so that's good. Anne, our heroine, is the middle daughter. She's kind, intelligent, takes after her mother, evidently, completely overlooked and taken for granted by all the members of her family. Papa has to rent out his estate to save money and heads off to Bath with his fashionable daughter Elizabeth, while poor Anne is left behind to be useful to her married sister and her children. You know, like Cassandra, spinsters equal useful. And Anne, at the opening of our scene, is 27. Again, the same age Jane Austen was when she rejected the offer of marriage to the respectable neighbor. What a theme that is. What a theme, 27. Anne hasn't always been destined for spinsterhood. She had a romance. Eight years prior, Anne had been engaged to Frederick Wentworth, a penniless Navy captain. She was persuaded not to marry him because at the time, he was not very wealthy. Yeah, Lady Russell, who was a friend of Anne's mother, and, you know, really of Anne's, thought he was a no-count. I mean, he had no money. He had no real connections. She's throwing herself away. Like, she's neglecting her duty to her family to marry well, etc., etc., Lady Russell is not malicious, I don't think. She was kind of protective, like, you know, she's trying to keep Anne from making a mistake. But Anne let herself be persuaded out of really what was true love. Flashback over. Flashback Present over. day, Anne's 27. Her home, Kellynch Hall, has now been rented out to Admiral and Mrs. Croft. Mrs. Croft, coincidentally, happens to be the sister to Frederick Wentworth. Too coincidentally, Jane Austen. Dun, dun, dun. So Anne thinks she's safe from this guy. She's not going to run into him, right? That old boyfriend. She's at her sister's house, her sister Mary. It's not too far away, but sure enough, Frederick makes friends with the men in her sister's family, the Musgroves, and he is a frequent visitor. Dang it. And now he has about three million pounds following him around. And now people admire him excessively and think he's a fine catch including the two, what would they be, cousins-in-law of, of Anne, Henrietta, and Louisa Musgrove. And he seems to be headed for one of the young lady Musgroves. 
Two great events happen. On a vacation to Lyme, Louisa Musgrove, one of the young ladies in question, falls off a wall, and Captain Wentworth blames himself for not catching her. She didn't really warn him, really, she was coming. She jumped too soon. He missed her. She fell on her head. You know, she wasn't wearing a helmet. So, it's a setup for true love. Guilt on one side, debilitating problems on the other side, and the second event that happens at Lyme, they meet Mr. Elliot, the handsome cousin who is to inherit Kellynch when Papa departs this earth. You know our favorite, the entail. It's all girls. It's got to make a lateral move. And in the era when you can marry your first cousin, you might do better off in this scenario than if your own brother inherited. Because you could marry the cousin and be the boss. Right? True. So, Mr. Elliot's handsome and charming and such a gentleman, unlike Lizzie Bennett's horrible cousin, Mr. Collins. (laughs) He's actually kind of nice. Rumors are flying that Mr. Elliot will be marrying Anne, and it's quite possible that she will be accepting him. Well, she is perhaps leaning his way, um, you know, in a settling kind of way, I think, when an old school friend lets her into the real Mr. Elliot. He's ruthless. He's cold. He's scheming. He only wants to marry Anne to keep the estate. She's a tool. She's not a love object. Because, you know, Anne's dad is still an attractive man. He could get married again and have a son, and then where would Mr. Elliot be? No, he's got to be on the spot and prevent that from happening. So, enter the real love object. Captain Wentworth is back. And he is quite jealous of this new development. He lets it known, and Anne recognizes his jealousy. They play some childish flirting games, you know, back and forth, high school, you know, notes. (laughs) I love it. And the best scene of the book He writes her a letter while he's listening to Anne talking to someone else about love. He's supposed to be writing to someone else, and he's writing to her the whole time. (laughs) And then he pretends to have forgotten something and gives it to her, and it's like, you know, swelling of violin music. Undying, constant love. After an eight-year gap, they're back. Yay! They're back together, and wedding bells are fixing to ring. Hooray, hooray. The end. Another Jane Austen heroine ends in marriage. I'm sorry, I'm totally ODing on Austen. I'm like wanting to vomit at this point. I'm not sure why. I'm not as in love with this one. By all accounts, I mean, it's got good elements like Pride and Prejudice. I really, really do think that Anne Elliot is a contender for second place of heroines. Of, But it didn't quite make it there, and I'm wondering, she wrote this when she was very sick. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what version is this of of an finished dog? Austin novel is the question that I keep asking was. Like, how far what did she, it get? What else could she have done? She could have fleshed out some characters. She could have made Anne, you know, given her some more witty dialogue, made her smarter-ish. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what she could have done. I'm not Jane Austen. Yeah, we don't know what but. stage this was in exactly when, when um, Henry and Cassandra got a hold of it. But, okay, here's some elements I love, love, love about this. The Musgroves are a very happy family, and they seem like the most well-adjusted of any family in any Austin book. More like the Austins, I think. They're affectionate and just wanting the best for everybody and everybody's like running around and the little kids are tearing up the furniture and, and it's Anne perfect. spends time with her nephews. So yeah. she's she's 
doing a lot of things that Jane would have been doing with her own nephews and yeah. nieces. The Crofts, too. Honestly, the Crofts that rented Kellynch Hall are happily married, and they share aspects of each other's lives. Like, mm-hmm. um, she wants to be included in going on the boat with them, and it, it's just a very respectful, nice relationship. They even share the driving. When they're driving a carriage, mm-hmm. they hand off the rain. You know, <laughs> it's good. And then also, Jane in this book gives a big homage to the Navy and what a great ladder it was to rise in society. You know, some of her own brothers made it this way. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, Anne's papa disparages it as a way for nobodies to kind of sneak through the back door into society. But Jane is showing what was happening in her own family and also the respect she had with regard to Navy men. They're self-made men. Right. But funnily enough, again, never describes the battles. No. They all happen off stage. The main characters, there's an admiral... And there's a captain, and they what are they doing? I don't know. They're just away. They did something in floating the on a Napoleonic boat. Wars and captured some boats and made some serious cash. Serious cash that way, but it's not important. It doesn't happen in the village, yeah. and that's what she focuses on: what's happening in the village. And I have to wonder how much pain she was in when she was writing this. You know, just to get this down in the condition that she was in is pretty remarkable. She might have gotten the idea to write this because she was feeling guilty that she had given her niece Fanny what she later considered to be some poor marital advice. <laughs> to, you know, not marry one guy. And I think there might have been a little remorse as it turned out. We make decisions based on what we know. When we know better, we do better. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so this is another Cinderella story, but I think it's so much better than Mansfield Park. She's taken advantage yeah. of, She's, but she's shown as being her own person and strong, and maybe it's just a function of Jane having been older or working on it a little more. I don't know. Not my favorite, but it's remarkable for what she went through to write it. Now, as to movies... You know, in the 2007 movie, I don't, I'm not like so loving either of the major ones. There's a 2007 and a 1995. The 1995, more true to the book. The 2007, I tell you, you can watch that in pieces on YouTube. You can certainly tell how many freaking servants they have. Oh my God, the opening scene (laughs) of the 2007 is her walking around with this inventory kind of haphazardly. I'm like, what are you doing? Checking things off? You're not even looking. You're just walking around like like a kook. I don't even know. But anyway, she's purportedly checking things off on an inventory, uh, although I don't think her pencil moves. And there are innumerable servants putting dust sheets on everything because it opens with them having to vacate. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow. And they all have powdered wigs. They're all men. I mean, it's an expensive house. You can tell right away. No wonder Papa was losing some cash. So, you know, use your best judgment on that. I I keep thinking that it's ripe for another Hollywood guy to come in and swoop and get this one done in a more grand kind of way. But Maybe. Jane Knights disagree. So, as to books, there are a few, as a matter of fact, on this one. There's Captain Wentworth's Diary by Amanda Grange, which is a pretty recent and um, pretty recent edition. And um, that tells the whole story from Captain Wentworth's point of view. It's always interesting to me to just... What was happening on the other side of the pen, of the yeah. novel? When you turned it upside down, because you read between the lines and read this, that's what you would read. Um, Bridget Jones' The Edge of Reason is supposed to be based on persuasion. I'm not really seeing it too much, but I would say far more loosely than the other was on Pride and Prejudice. 
there is a modern version called Persuading Annie by Melissa Nathan um, that a lot of people might like. It is perhaps more of a chiclet. You don't like chiclet. I love chiclet. Nothing wrong with that. So it's a modern take on this. Um, I think it's so interesting that there's so much more for persuasion than there is for Mansfield Park. Everyone just threw up their hands. I don't know. I don't know about that. Can't do anything with Mansfield Park. So let's see. There are so many quotes about feminism and, and everything that could be given to you from this book. But I'll just leave you with this one because Jane knows the deal. A lady without a family was the very best preserver of furniture in the world, proving that the dangers of juice boxes and soccer cleats translate very well. The end. And on to the sixth and last of the major novels, Northanger Abbey, which, curiously, may have in fact been written first and was published last. It was written perhaps around 1795 and then published not until 1817, again posthumously. Uh, its former title was Susan and then Catherine. Right. It was first sold for £10 a long time ago. And redeemed by Jane Austen with the ransom of ten pounds from the same publisher before she died, but she didn't publish it before she died, which meant to me she might want to polish it some more. Yeah, well, at that point, a lot of the novels that she references in the story were it was dated, and it wasn't dated like historically. It was just like when you watch You've Got Mail, that movie, and they click onto AOL through the you know wee you know which. At, it's just dated to us now. Yeah. So, and it's not even dated, like, cute. It's like, oh, come on. We're still bored with it, you know? Like, So, I, I think maybe she wanted to, this is just me saying, she might have wanted to update it with a little bit more contemporary references for her audience at that point. Ah. That's just my theory. Whatever. So, on to the 32nd plot summary. A satirical coming-of-age tale where our heroine imagines herself to be living in a life of a gothic novel, but eventually realizes that living her own life is drama enough. The end. And so now on to the plot. Catherine Moreland is 17 and a great reader of gothic novels. You know, those lurid things are full of hauntings and secrets and dark intentions. Her favorite is The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe. However, Catherine's life does not match up to this romantic, <laughs> romantic danger life found in her books. No, she's a very ordinary teen in a very ordinary town of Fullerton, which actually sounds like the beginning of a contemporary novel. Yeah, and her parents but. are alive. They're Everybody's perfectly healthy. Everybody's kind. You know, I'm almost like these people rival the Musgroves in the last book as the mm -hmm. best parents. There's ten kids. Things happen. We're not going to get too head up about anything. Yeah, they reminded me a lot of the Austin family yeah. themselves. And Catherine doesn't fit the picture of the heroine. She's, quote, pretty enough when she smiles. She's not some consumptive heiress <laughs> with flowing tresses. She's been pretty sheltered and takes things at face value, which is very good in the country. 
but maybe not so good in the city. The Allens, who are childless neighbors, offer to take Catherine to Bath for a holiday. Catherine is thrilled, and armed with her naivete and wisdom gleaned from all those novels, she sets off on an adventure of her own with the Allens. She meets two important people right away. Henry Tilney. Oh, Henry. So charming, so funny, so delighted with her. Hmm. Bath is looking up. That's right. And then she meets Isabella Thorpe. Pretty, worldly, kind of frivolous. You know, the two become friends. She now has a girlfriend, someone to hang out with. They talk their novels, and they walk around the room. (laughs) Sounds awesome. I know. Catherine's older brother, whose name is James, he arrives in town with his friend John, who is, hey, Isabella's older brother. There. (sighs) There's a bit of a coincidence, but we can double date. Yay! Except John Thorpe is a blowhard, and he is an uncomfortable-making wacko, shall we say. (laughs) But Isabella is smitten with James, big time. She thinks that Thorpes are a little lesser down financially, so she thinks this is going to be a good match for her. So, of course, she's going to hold Catherine close. Because she holds Catherine close, she holds James close. So Henry returns with his sister, Eleanor, and it's an all-skate. So you've got... (laughs) That's funny. So you've got the Thorpes, ill-bred Thorpes, versus the Tilneys, much more the thing, and the imposing Tilney Papa, General Tilney, who I always picture as a mean Colonel Sanders from KFC. (laughs) Yeah. Catherine's brother proposes to the unworthy Isabella, who accepts because, like Susan said, she thinks he's rich, and immediately she gets the news. She's pretty bummed when she discovers she's hitched her wagon to a middle-class star. Four hundred pounds a year? What the heck? What the heck is that? She immediately starts up a flirtation with the oldest Tilney brother, who's just like Henry Crawford and is playing some dirty game. He doesn't love her. He doesn't care. He's just flirting. That's uncool, though. You're engaged, my friend. Oh, yes. You've closed the door. You're all done playtime. Yeah. So under the same delusion, Brother John had thrown it some half-alec proposal to our heroine, but she headed him off. John Thorpe. Catherine spends a lot of her time getting, trying to get her way out of situations where she finds herself with John. I know. He's no good. No. He's kind of like Collins, only a little more socially adept, but he brags, brags, brags. Pompous, rude. Yeah. He's no good. Well, so, Papa, General Tilney, thinks Catherine's rich, too. What a nice catch she would be. Do come visit us at Northanger Abbey, my darling. Do come. Northanger Abbey? Why, that sounds like the location of one of my favorite gothic novels. Ooh, Ooh. she can't wait. Plus, she's sort of got the thing now for Henry Tilney. So, there's no reason for her not to go. So off to the Abbey, where instead of the creepy haunted mansion she was expecting, it's just a plain old big house. There's no spider webs. People have swept. It's a bummer. What the heck? I found a hidden message in an old cabinet. She's so excited, and she can't wait to read it. Her hands are trembling. This is just like a book, and it turns out to be a laundry inventory. That's what I think was so funny about this book, is that Catherine's imagination was spurring into the overdrive these situations that turned out to be perfectly normal. Well, yeah, there's a mysterious suite of rooms that's locked up and no one goes there. At last, here's the mystery I've wanted. They used to belong to Mrs. General Tilney. 
In Catherine's mind, the death of Henry and Eleanor's mother becomes a sinister murder plot. She thinks the general had imprisoned her in these rooms, and then, oh no, he must, he killed her. She works herself up to such a pitch that she even, like, scares herself, kind of. And she goes on this secret prowl for evidence. And unlike the Scooby-Doo kids, who always seem to find some bad guy, or some footprint, or some ghost... Catherine discovers that everything is perfectly ordinary, and the only person who's found out is her. Because Henry's outside the door, and he he kind of figures out what's going on. And it's really embarrassing. Overactive imagination. She needs to cool it on those books. It's basically... And he's not really mad, but Catherine is just embarrassed as heck. I mean, she realizes, like, think with a big tumble, like, oh crap, what have I been doing? Catherine receives word that her brother James's engagement is off, although her overactive imagination hasn't caught up with it, and she imagines that Frederick, Henry's brother, has forced the hand of Isabella and made the engagement cease. But James says, no, no, no. Again, it's perfectly ordinary. She was flirting with this dude. Frederick, I got mad. End of story. Anyway, the general goes off to kick some butt. He's out of here. And while the big cat is away, the three young people play. Eleanor and Henry and Catherine have a great time. Henry and Catherine are back to where the music starts to swell in the background when Papa comes home in a rage and makes Eleanor kick Catherine out. Kick her out! And Eleanor doesn't have a choice. She has to do it, so Catherine is sent back home not knowing why. And he bundles her, I mean bundles her, like so much baggage into a post chaise with no escort. That's a 70-mile journey unescorted for a 17-year-old girl. That is, like, uncool. That's, like, such disregard for the proprieties on his part. He's the real villain. You know what? He is. He is a villain. He didn't murder anybody. But nobody would expect for their daughter to be treated this way. It's 11 hours in a post-chase. I looked it up. <laughs> really? Uh-huh. And a post-chase <laughs> means the, the vehicle goes and the horses change at every stop. Although, even nerdier, on that route, the passengers had to change at every other stop because they wanted to keep the vehicles near their stations. So, I mean, just imagine every other stop you had to get out, find your baggage, move yourself, because you have no escort, to another carriage. It's a big pain in the hiney. It becomes really dangerous, kind of. So, not very refined of an arrival. Pretty uncool. Her parents are irritated and angry. They're glad she's home. But she's pretty unhappy. She's moping around, pining for Henry. Well, okay, finally, Henry comes to tell the tale. Remember old John Thorpe, creepy stalker man? Okay, when he thought she was his girlfriend, he would brag about big money, big money, big money, family connections and blah, blah, blah. But when he was out, he felt like he wanted to ruin her name by telling everybody, including General Tilney, that Catherine was a dirt-poor, destitute, grasping-at-straws fortune hunter. And that's what sent General Tilney home in a rage. Which, if you think about it, isn't exactly being evil. It was looking out for his best interests of his son. Well, it was all about money, but not for Henry. Not for Henry. We love Henry. He's really in love. And he told his dad to shut it. (laughs) And he hide himself over. And he asked her to marry him. We like Henry. Henry's an upstanding gentleman. Good for him. Yeah, but they decide to wait until daddy approves of it. Yeah, and weirdly, this is the weird, like, I don't get why this, whatever. Henry's sister Eleanor marries a man of rank and pounds... And so, all of a sudden, Papa agrees, having found that, oh, you're not destitute, you're middle class, which still kind of sucks, but I guess I give my permission, because one of my children did well. It doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. But wedding bells, again, finny. Yay. Maybe 
Jane wanted to rewrite the ending. Yeah, I have that written too. Oh, you do? Yeah. Yeah. Because it just, there's just things that a mature Jane would change in this story. And maybe that's what she was hoping to do later on, but she never got a chance to. Yeah, remember, she got it back, and she didn't send it right back out. So it's obvious she wanted to do something to it, but we'll never know what, because she didn't get to it. Yeah, and it sat in a drawer for ten years. She really hadn't looked at it, and maybe she read through it, and she's like, oh, this is crap, crap, I can change that, this is good, but, yeah. The only quote I have from here is not very feminist. (laughs) Are we feminist? I'm just saying it's not. That's a conversation for a whole other day. Well, it's just not very flattering to to us in our efforts, but here it is. Miss Moreland, no one can think more highly of the understanding of women than I do. In my opinion, nature has given them so much that they never find it necessary to use more than half. (laughs) See, I don't even use half. (laughs) See, I don't know if I want to do that. I like this one line of Catherine. She's in Bath talking to future husband Henry. We didn't know that at the time, though. He compliments her on her frank speech, and she says, I cannot speak well enough to be unintelligible. (laughs) Meaning, I don't know how to do this thing you guys do with the saying one thing and meaning another thing. Yeah. I I think part of her appeal to him is that she's just plain speaking. Um, I tried to listen to the audiobook of The Mysteries of Udolfo. I couldn't make it. It's available on LibriVox. It's upwards of 70 chapters. Mm. Anyway, let me give it another go. I, you know, I just don't know. I think you sent me a message while you were listening to it. I just can't. I can't. And I get, I'll give you props for even trying, because I didn't even try. Well, it's still on the iPod. I mean, you know, you never know. When I reach the end of all my other podcasts that I listen to, maybe I will get to that. But Well, in the words of Henry Tilney, perhaps after all it is possible to read too many novels. Ooh, or listen to too many novels, huh? I have read many places that this is the least regarded of Jane Austen's novels. Um, maybe. Uh, even in the Jane Austen Book Club, which is a book about people reading Jane Austen's books, there's kind of an outcast, the one guy, the one newbie in the whole group. He picks this novel, and everyone's like, yes, then no one else has to take it. Mm-hmm. Disdain, kind of, for his pick, disdain for the guy. But I liked it better than I liked Mansfield Park. I like the idea of it rather than the execution better than Mansfield Park. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because it had a lot of her young and um, idealistic, the whole novel thing. I thought that was kind of cool to reference the novels that were popular at the time and contrast it into the story. I, I, I like that part. I think, you know, if she had gotten her hands on it and a good word processing program, she could have done some really magical things with it. <laughs> now, as to movies... <laughs> There is great debate. I'm going to leave this to you. I have no opinion. I have an opinion that this street is getting a lot of motorcycle traffic today. Thanks, Mother. I have no real opinion on 86 versus 07. There are many, many people on many forums who will debate you for it. I don't have an opinion either way. Do what you like with those. They are equal to me in that nobody's really... Nobody's really made this jazzy enough for me yet, I suppose, which is bad to say. Beckett's, like, opening up this. You're, like, opening up this whole line of movies that could be remade. I know. There's all this opportunity here. Emma Thompson, are you listening to me? I don't know what role you're going to play now, Emma. You're a little old, but... Boss. Yeah. She'll be the boss. You're not old. I mean, you're too old to be the young, ingenue heroine, but... 
Not too old to be the boss. So, okay. So, as to books, there is a YA book that is called Northanger Alibi. And in Northanger Alibi, she reads far too much Twilight and other vampire fiction, and she's convinced someone is a vampire. Hijinks ensue. Twilight is heavily influenced by Pride and Prejudice. I didn't mention that we were talking Pride and Prejudice because it's kind of far-fetched, but... It's kind of six degrees of separation. But Bella is no Lizzie. Oh, no. I'm sorry. No. Lizzie would have rejected them both, frankly. She would have thrown the novel across the room. Mm-mm-mm. There's also, you know, this is, I really like this kind of fan fiction, where it's called Henry Tilney's Diary by Amanda Grange, and it's told from the viewpoint of Henry Tilney, the man in the case. I always like that. Um, here's two websites that I think you should visit. They're, they're blogs, as much as I hate the word blog. Uh, Austin Prose will provide you links. And The Republic of Pemberley is a very click-worthy website. And here is a book recommendation for you, if all those others have just not gotten to you. A Truth Universally Acknowledged, 33 Great Writers on Why We Read Jane Austen. Highly recommend. It spans a hundred years of critical essays, basically, on people that love Jane Austen, other authors that love Jane Austen, and why. And I think it's really, really nice. Yeah, I think maybe if you started with that, it might whet your appetite for the rest. And when all else fails, watch the Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> and then read the book. Yeah. All right. And that brings us, at long last, to the end of the Jane Austen Book Club series. We will be back soon with our regularly themed episode. Thanks for listening. Bye! For show notes, links to the things we talked about today, or to donate, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at thehistorychicks, with an X, or like us on Facebook without an X. If you'd like us in real life, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. Our music comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.mevio.com. Catch me if you can. Hey, ends full of sand. Cities rise and fall while the heart beats straight on. Love in